Well, uh, if you have your Bibles, turn back to the passage that Matthew read, the book of Esther. And we've been going through the book and we've come to the final part of the book. And you'll notice in the book, um, you get a feel from the fact of what, how much technology we have. You know, we've got the internet, we've got phones, and we've got all these things. Uh, going back, we had the postal service, which we still have, but isn't as good as what we've got now. But we read in here the way that news was translated to the rest of the country, and it was done by horseback, and you, you, know, you can imagine what that was like. And then you've got also the fact that everything was written down, and records were kept. And we have these historical records of the likes of the Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, and they are all realities of life. But more than that, we have God's written word. And what I want us to do is to just think about these things, uh, think about the book of Esther, think about what we've seen so far. And as we draw to the end, it's quite a long reading, but I wanted us to get a feel for what is happening at the end of the book. And it would be good to go back and maybe open your Bible and Maybe do it in one sitting if you want to. You know, it's good to sit down and read a book. Read the book of Esther. It's not a big book. Uh, or read it and, and consider of the things that we've already seen. So let's just look at our Bibles as we go through this passage and let's see what we can learn this morning. We know that on the 13th day of the 12th month, the day that Haman's law gave the citizens of Persia, that great empire, permission to kill the members of every Jewish family and then take for themselves their property and their possessions. This was announced at the beginning of the year and it was to take place at the end of the year. So we have a year in which all these things have been happening that we've been reading about. But that law, like the Jewish people without hope, until Mordecai was in a position to inaugurate a new law, a law that gave the Jewish people the right to defend themselves against these armed men who had given legal permission to go out on that day and slaughter every Jew, man, woman and child. But we have this second law that gives them the right to defend themselves. And as we've gone through this book, we've seen how Esther and Mordecai, from their humble beginnings, when they were faced with a situation that was beyond their control, they turned to God and asked for his help. It's good to think about that, isn't it? something that we can apply and that's what they did and when they did that their sorrow and it was sorrow they were desperate but their sorrow was turned to joy you know we need to look at this in the context of the whole of god's word way back god promised abraham that through his descendants, a saviour would come. And through that saviour, the whole world would be blessed. But he also told us that there would be opposition. 
Because that's the reality of life. And the opposition to that began even before Abraham. It began way back when Adam sinned. And when Adam sinned, God said this. You can go way back to Genesis chapter 3. And God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. I will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The book of Esther is about God protecting this promise. The promise way back from the words he spoke in Genesis and then the promise he gave to Abraham. And this book of Esther is about God protecting that promise and at times the cost would be high. And the high price to be paid would be the full price that was paid when Jesus was nailed to the cross. The opposition was there at the beginning. The opposition has been there right through the Bible, right through the lives of Esther and Mordecai. It was there when they took Jesus and nailed him to the cross. Opposition. And you know when he rose from the dead, that opposition remained and the opposition comes against him through his people. So as Christians, we shouldn't be surprised at the fact that we do see persecution and we do see opposition. You know, Jesus said this. He said, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd gave his life for the sheep. That's us, the sheep. Jesus gave his life for you and me. He paid that high price that was demanded, but it didn't remove the opposition. And as I mentioned last week, we don't get a pair of those sunglasses that make everything look good. You get the realities of the lives that we live. When Jesus died on the cross, this was the consummation of the good news of the promise of a saviour. A saviour who will constantly be rejected in this fallen world. And this is why when you come into the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians of his day. He wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus. His letters went from one church to another. And the words that he sent in those letters spread throughout the Christian communities. And he said this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's just as true today as it was when Paul wrote those words. That's why we've still got them in our Bibles. In Esther chapter 9, verse 1 through to 13, the bit that we didn't read, but the bit that we looked at last week, the 13th day of the 12th month dawned. The conflict became a reality. And it lasted until the sun went down on that 13th day of the 12th month. 
and a report of the day's events went to King Xerxes. He had to be told because he didn't know. As most leaders, he probably stayed in his palace, locked the door, put the kettle on, had a cup of tea, and let everybody get on with it. And then afterwards said, now come and tell me what's happened. And they did. The news was that in the capital city of Susa, when Jewish people defended themselves, 500 men died. They were the oppressors who came against them. And also the 10 sons of Haman were killed. And the king passed this information on to Esther the queen, because she wouldn't have known the results of that day, because she would have been in the palace. So the king passed the information on to the queen. Yes, this is what is happening. This is what you wanted. And it's a strange thing here, because this is what Esther had requested. This is what the king had granted. And now the king goes to Esther, and he says to her, Right, that's been done now, that's finished. What else can I do for you? Anything you want, I will give you. Now you might be surprised, I hope you were surprised, at the request that Esther made to the king. Verse 13. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also. And let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. Oh, stop for a moment. She's asked for two more things. One, give the Jewish people another day to defend themselves. And two, take the dead bodies of the ten sons of Haman and hang them on the gallows. In other words, display their bodies to the public. Let's just think about that first request. Give the Jewish people in the capital city one more day to defend themselves. Why would Esther ask that the conflict in the capital city continue for another day? Why, why should we, why should he, is she trying to get revenge? Is she, what, what's happening here? We're not actually told. But we're told that she made this request. And she made it for a purpose. You see, what's happening here is more than a confrontation between two men, one who hates the other, or one man who hates a nation. What's happening here is a spiritual conflict. There's more to it. We need to see that this is about two things. It's about deliverance and it's about justice. That's what this whole conflict has been about. Deliverance and justice. We, we want those two things in life, don't we? You know, we want to be set free from something. And anybody who offends us, we want them to be dealt with in a just way. That's why we have law courts. 
Now, the Jewish people, we looked at this last week, and I want you to recall it. They understood what was happening here. How do we know that? We know that they understood that this was deeper than just this conflict between two men. They understood that this, what was happening, was for another reason. And that the reason was a spiritual reason. And we know that they knew that by the way they conducted themselves. They had to write to go and kill all the people who came against them and their families. And they had the right to take all their possessions. But they didn't. And the Bible specifically tells us that they didn't. They only killed the men, the armed men who came against them. And then they didn't take the plunder. The book of Esther is not a stand-alone book. None of the books in the Bible are stand-alone books. They are all part of what is a big picture. And it's God's picture. And we're talking about God protecting his people. I'm going to just quote a verse or two from the New Testament. It's from Peter. And Peter wrote this in his letter to the churches. And he said, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Get that. This is about God's promise. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. Why do we have those words? Why, why did Peter write them down and send them out to the church? Why is it that Peter said those things? Well, it's very simple. The reason is that the Lord knows that without the death of Jesus, all would perish. Did you get that? That's why those words were spoken. Because without the death of Jesus, there'd be no salvation. We would all be under the wrath of God. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, and the words that you know very well. I'm sure you can quote them back to me now if I just say it's Romans 6, verse 23. But I want us just to look at them slowly and to realize what is happening here in the book of Esther and how it relates to these verses from both the Old and the New Testament. For the wages of sin is death. You know that, don't you? You know the verse now. But I'm going to stop there. For the wages of sin is death. These are words of the hopeless state that humanity is in. Sin brings death. But the verse goes on and it continues with a but. Sometimes that word but is a really encouraging word. The wages of sin is death. But, this is it, the gift of God is eternal life. 
in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Did you get that? The gift of God is Jesus the Christ, the one who died on the cross. Come with me now in a few moments. You know when you, you watch a film or television, um, what they do, the, the plot gets quite complicated. And sometimes those complications, you think, well, what's going on here? And you know what they use? They use a little phrase, and they call it the backstory. Yeah. It might come up on the screen two months earlier or 12 years earlier. And without that back plot, you won't be able to understand what you've been watching. And this book of Esther is just like that. If we just read it, you think, oh, I don't think I like Esther. You know, she's a bit of a, uh, you know, why does she want them to carry on fighting? Why does she want those bodies being hung out in the street so that everybody can see them? Well, if you know the backstory, you don't understand what's happening. You don't understand why this battle, this conflict, is a spiritual conflict. Esther and Mordecai were of the tribe of Benjamin. Remember that? Benjamin. Put that in mind. The same tribe as Saul, the first king of Israel. Haman was a descendant of Agag and the Amalekites. Okay, why is that important? Well, the backstory will show us why it's important. You go to Exodus chapter 17. I'm going to read the whole chapter. For here the Amalekites, they attack the Israelites as they travel through the wilderness. And the Amalekites were attempting to prevent God's chosen people from reaching the promised land. And this was an effort by the Amalekites to destroy God's promise of a Messiah. That's what was happening. Way back in Exodus, they failed. The Israelites won the victory. But at that time, God passed judgment on the Amalekites for what they had done. They had tried to annihilate God's people, the people through whom the Messiah would come. And if that happened, there'd be no Messiah. There'd be no Jesus. The wages of sin is death. And that would be it. But the promise was there. In Exodus 17, the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to remember and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. That is God's judgment on that nation that tried to stop the birth of the Messiah and bring salvation to you and I. And some years later, we're still in the backstory as it goes on. And you come to the book of Samuel. And you can read 1 Samuel right through chapter 15. 
And King Saul, that Benjamite, after a battle with the Amalekites, he disobeyed God's command. Twice. The first one, and get this and you see the relevance of what happened in Esther, they were told not to take the plunder. And they did. Then, instead of killing the king, he let him live. Agag, the king, lived. I know it's not the same, but it's a little bit like a, you look at justice and sometimes it needs to be hard. And if you know somebody who's done something really, really bad and it was deliberate, maybe murdered quite a few people, he stands up before the judge and the judge says, yeah, I know it will be justice if I sentence you to life imprisonment. But you know what? I'll let you go. That's not justice, is it? This was justice. And Saul failed to justice, to justify what God had said. So, here in Susa, the days of Esther and Mordecai, the fallout is from the disobedience of King Saul. It's more than likely that in the city of Susa, but it was a hotbed of opposition towards the Jews. You see, Haman, he was in a very high position. And he hated not just Mordecai, he hated the Jews. And he was persecuting the Jews. He wanted to kill Mordecai. This was his intention. He was a powerful man. He had a lot of friends, people in high places. And he would have stirred the people up. He stirred them up to the point where he passed a law without the king knowing what the law was, that all the Jews right throughout the nation would be annihilated all on one day. The city, the capital city, would have been a hotbed of hatred towards the Jewish people, which would have been carrying on throughout that year, and the people would have been holding back their hatred until that day, and then the floodgates would open. Can you, can you see that in a big city, maybe like London or even Liverpool or Manchester? This hatred that's been building up over the year has been dictated by a man who is in a powerful position. And the promise is, look, get rid of all these Jews and you can have all their houses, you can have all their land, you can have all their property. It's probably after that one day, still what we might call revolution in the air, the city was probably still in uproar and there would have been those who would have been after revenge. And Esther was guided by God's hand and she said, look, when the king said, what can I do for you? Give us one more day to make sure that this situation can be controlled and resolved. 
But the second thing, put the bodies of Haman's sons, those who were already dead, why, why do that? Why take these dead bodies and hang them so that everybody can see? Well, putting the bodies of Haman's dead sons in public display in those days, we've got to look at those days, would have been seen as a deterrent to those who might want to continue the conflict against the Jewish people. We are that. That's why she wanted that to happen. So the king gave Esther and Mordecai permission for this to happen. Remember, these people are living on the Persian War. And this would have been something that would have been done in Persian law after a battle. And if you want to look further into this, when the enemy killed Saul, they hung his body on a city wall so that everybody could see it. You see, the backstory explains why these things happened and why they happened the way they did. As we think about these things, a little bit of history here that's come into our time. The Jews in the rest of the empire had defended themselves on the 13th day and on the 14th day they rested and they fasted. They celebrated. The Jews in the city of Susa had defended themselves on the 13th and the 14th day and then on the 15th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. Okay? That's in the Bible. That's here. That's what happened then. But we also read that Mordecai recorded all that happened, and then he decreed that both the 14th and the 15th day of the month in Ada should be declared a public holiday as a celebration, as they celebrated their deliverance. And part of that celebration was that they would give gifts to each other. Official letters were sent out throughout the whole nation of Persia to make the celebration an annual event. And these two days of purity, according to Mordecai's edict, should never fail to be celebrated, celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among all descendants. We also know that the word purity is reference to the lot that was cast when Haman wanted to name the day of the Jews annihilation. But the desire of Naaman was overruled by God's will. We've seen that in this book. We're in 2023. And it's March. On the 6th and 7th of March this year, the Orthodox Jews celebrated the two days of Purim, where they fasted, celebrated, and gave presents. That's still happening today.
We read it. Esther, Mordecai, and King Xerxes. Chapter 10. It's a very short chapter. And it's really the king celebrating what happened. And it's really the king getting what he can get out of what happened, as kings do. He said how great Mordecai was, told all the people how great Mordecai was. The higher Mordecai was, you've got to remember, Mordecai is only second to the king, so the king is much higher. He's blowing his own trumpet here, as well as blowing Mordecai's trumpet. And because the Persians keep all these things down in the laws and they write them down, it was written down in the law of the Persians. And he also used it in order to raise the taxes. Look what a great job we've done here. I'm a great king. So I'm going to raise the taxes. You're going to pay for it. That's what he did. That's what chapter 10 is all about. Well, this chapter is not about Xerxes the king. This book, not just the book of Esther, but the whole Bible is about the King of Kings. The King of Kings who right throughout the Bible is at work in the hearts of his faithful people, even today. We saw it in Esther and Mordecai. And what's he doing? He's protecting, God is protecting his promise. The promise of the one who will bring deliverance and deliverance that would cost you and I nothing. But it would cost Jesus Everything. See that? Not like an earthly king. This is God, the King of Kings. And He's the one who can turn your fear and my fear into joy. And the fear that He removes is the fear of the wrath of God. And how can He do that? Because someone else paid the price. And that someone else paid a price that would cover the sins of every single person. But that doesn't mean that every single person will be saved. It's there. It costs nothing to have it. But you have to take it. What does God want? Repentance. But repentance done in the name and the power of Jesus who hung on the cross he paid the price I might have a wallet in my pocket and the wallet might be able to pay every one of your bills but you know if you didn't come and ask for the money and if you didn't take what was in the wallet your bills wouldn't be paid and that's the offer of salvation. Remember the woman of the well? Jesus met the Samaritan woman of the well. And what did he say to her? If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living waters. That's what Jesus is. He's the water of life. 
And if you don't come and drink of that by coming to him in repentance, then you won't know the joy that can bring. We've been going through the book of Revelation. That's what Jesus said to the woman of the well. The prophet Isaiah also said about the living water that brings eternal life. Jesus said that he was the living water that brings eternal life. In Revelation 21 verse 6 and this is after the day of judgment he said to me it is done. Who's speaking here? It's God. The verse goes on. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And then it goes on. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. That's for those who have that eternal life and who meet with God in the power of Jesus. And you meet the Lamb of God, who is Jesus, because you've accepted that water that will flow in glory from the river of life. Just going to finish with two things. Another verse from the New Testament from Ephesians 2, verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's free. And at the end of our time in the book of Esther, this is the question. Have you received the gift from God that can turn your fear into joy? Father, we just thank you for this book of Esther. We thank you for what we've seen in it. Now, Father, we know that your name is not mentioned here, but we see you at work. We see the results of your work. And our Father, we just ask through this book, yes, we might see you as the living water. As we ask it in his name.